If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Christmas from Podsafe the UK. I'm Nish Kumar. And I'm Coco Khan. Yes, and the podcast we like to call the News Asians, but no one else does, is back with a festive special looking at the highlights and lowlights of the year in British politics. Spoiler alert, it's mainly lowlights. Yes, everything's been collapsing this year, from the government's majority to your kids' schools. So let's review the last 12 months like it's a group therapy session that none of us can get booked into because the NHS is collapsing as well. And to help us out, we've invited along two very clever and very funny friends, comedians Andy Zaltzman and Catherine Bohart. So buckle up as we put 2023 to the sword once we've wrestled it off Penny Morden. Hello, PSUK listeners. I hope you've had a fantastic Christmas and your Quality Street tin was only filled with the good ones. Coco, good to see you. Hi, Nish. Shall we introduce our special guest? I like that you said that in a way that suggested you were surprised to see me. <laughs> Coco! I, I work You're here. here. I work here. <laughs> Um, Shall we introduce our special guests? Yes, let's get on with it because uh, my head is enormous and the festive Christmas turkey hat (laughs) that is currently perched precariously atop of it is slowly slipping off. For the benefit of listeners, I am wearing a turkey hat uh, because I was forced to by the producers because they said it wasn't festive enough for me to be sat here in a black jumper looking like I was protesting the very nature of the holiday. But I'm currently wearing a very sort of yellowish, yeah. undercooked turkey. Catherine Bohart is an actor, writer and comedian who you'll probably recognise from her many TV appearances on shows like Mock the Week and Live at the Apollo. She also co-presents the podcast Trusty Hogs. She'll be touring her stand-up show again with feelings from March next year. Hi, Catherine. Hi. I also have a very large head and I'm having a circulation issue. Is it weird to say I think the turkey hat suits you. The turkey hat suits me? Yeah. I I think it looks like I've had a festive breakdown. Well, and I hope you take this in the right way. You seem like a guy who'd be like anti-Christmas. You, why would you say that? <laughs> well, because just because the Daily Mail has accused me of it a few times. <laughs> Did you steal Christmas? <laughs> it's cheery, but in a sort of, you know, um, reluctant way. <laughs> I like it. Um, our other guest is uh, Andy Zaltzman, comedian and uber cricket nerd who is uh, chair of Radio 4's The News Quiz and also hosts the satirical podcast The Bugle, which uh, I am also a frequent contributor to. Another fun fact about Andy, he says that uh, only I and his mother refer to him as Andrew. That's, uh, <laughs> that is correct, yes. <laughs> is that correct, Andrew, yeah, yeah. right? I think that's the only thing you've got in common with my mother. But, um... <laughs> well, no, we're both very disappointed in you. <laughs> Let's rewind the clock back 12 months to January, a more hopeful time when a fresh-faced, short-trousered Prime Minister called Rishi Sunak only a couple of months into the job shared his five New Year's resolutions, or as he called them, pledges, with a grateful and relieved nation. First, we will halve inflation this year to ease the cost of living and give people financial security. Second, we will grow the economy creating better paid jobs and opportunity right across the country. 
Third, we will make sure our national debt is falling so that we can secure the future of public services. Fourth, NHS waiting lists will fall and people will get the care they need more quickly. Fifth, we will pass new laws to stop small boats, making sure that if you come to this country illegally, you are detained and swiftly removed. So we'll get on to how those pledges have stood up in a moment, but just to just to cut Rishi some slack here because it's Christmas, isn't it good that he stood up there and made some actual promises to the public, something that gives us something to judge him by? It is. It is interesting for a prime minister to give you the metrics by which you might wish to fire him, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it felt to me like he wasn't sure if he wanted the job. So it was like, <laughs> hey, listen, I'm saying I'll do this. Shall we all see? What did you make of the pledge, Saltzman? Well, I mean, a pledge is an interesting term. I and mean, politically, a pledge is uh, generally uh, performed with your fingers crossed behind your back. It's, <laughs> a, a pledge is something that sounds like you mean it, but that you obviously hope that people will forget. A promise is something that you have no real intention of doing, but you hope by saying it, you will get a two-day boost in the opinion polls. And a vow is a lie. So there's three things that sound the same, but they're all subtly, subtly different. To be fair to Sir, I mean, we'd have to see it in context. It's a tough gig, taking over as Prime Minister when he did, the end of 2022. I mean, it's basically, to me, it's like being dropped in at the last minute to give a speech at someone else's granny's funeral. That is... <laughs> That's tricky, isn't As it? In, like, this is like post-Queen Britain. Yeah, yeah I'm not talking, dead, about specific, all... <laughs> not talking about that specific <laughs> granny, Coco. Just a generic fictional granny. I mean, it's a difficult thing to do, you know, to suddenly, you know, you've given, given basically like two minutes notice, you've got to make a speech to this granny. It's very, very difficult. But that said, what he's essentially done is sing She Was Old and She Deserved to Die to the tune of that granny's least favourite Abba song. So I don't think he's played the cards that he's been dealt but, but also he was well. following Liz Truss. So in yes, a sense, there, there wasn't, that. wasn't so, he benefiting from lower yeah, expectations? Yeah. So it's, it's difficult in terms of you know, the, the situation he was in, but then easy by, by comparison, you know, following Truss, then Boris Johnson, Theresa May, David Cameron. I mean, to me, that's like following Mark Rothko or Jackson Pollock in a just paint some fucking dogs playing snooker competition. <laughs> you ought to be able to yeah. achieve a certain level of basic. Oh, if, we follow, if we're extending the grandma's funeral analogy to its logical end point, it is like making a speech at someone else's grandma's funeral, but the speech before you was someone saying, look, I killed grandma and I don't regret it. <laughs> I was going to say, if, that, if you and the gang killed her, sure. I would also say COVID made, I mean, committing to making NHS waiting lists mm. shorter after yeah. that is a bit like being like, I commit to making the weather a bit better from March. Like, sure, I guess. Yeah, fine, sure. But that, that was a criticism at the time, wasn't it? That people said, well, he's basically saying things that are almost certainly going to naturally happen anyway. Certainly yeah, the economic side of things. Those things were meant to happen, but yet they didn't. So that's exciting, <laughs> right? NHS waiting list went up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, booking expectation, pretty impressive. I, I, I don't like to think, of, I think that's a very negative way of putting it, waiting list. I prefer to think of it as anticipation building period. Like the Glastonbury ticket queue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Give you a little counter. Yeah, you get that, get that excitement. Yeah. Also, yeah, what are you going to get? Are you going to get an appendectomy? Are you going to get a, a, a knee transplant or, or nothing? Yeah, it's a, or, a, it's or an oasis reunion. <laughs> I am genuinely terrified that he's going to have like a galaxy brain moment and realise he could cut the waiting list by just getting rid of the NHS. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Plot twist. Yeah, just like peak evil. That's my yeah. worry is that they'll put one plus one and get to... Yeah. <laughs> got to massage the stats, yeah. haven't you? <laughs> you really do. Yeah. But, I mean, but and also all of these pledges, halving inflation, growing the economy, reducing debt, cutting waiting lists, stopping the boats, um, those are all basically saying we're going to start dealing with the absolute Jeroboam of shit that we've uncorked over yeah, the last correct. 13. So it's not like a new vision. It's saying we're going to start clearing up some of our some of our mess. How it's actually going is that uh, inflation uh, has halved, right? So it's but it's still at 4.6%, which is still very high. In terms of the stop the boats pledge, they're mired in various legal challenges to the Rwanda plan. And I think at the moment, their current solution is to find every dictionary in the country and change the meaning of the word safe to whatever the Conservative government announces it is. They might uh, just change the meaning of the word boat. As well. <laughs> or, I mean, another way to do it is just drain the, the channel so they don't need to use boats and just come over on a tricycle instead. Also, just the small boats is a bit... That feels like we're being played for fools. I'm like, put James Cleverly lying down in front of a Caribbean cruise <laughs> and then I'll, then I'll bite. But so far, no good to me. Why did this video clip signal more January blues for the already embattled Prime Minister? Hi, one of my New Year's promises to you was to grow the economy. And today we're announcing the second round of allocations from our levelling up fund. Very simple. He was actually driving at the time. (laughs) Quite a lot of deaths. (laughs) Yes, for those listening, you can hear the unmistakable rumble uh, of a car in the background. But the reason it caused uh, problems for him was, of course, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Uh, and he was fined for not wearing a seatbelt in a movie car whilst filming a social media video to promote the uh, levelling up agenda. Which uh, yeah, but I mean, to be fair, he's saying you need to get the economy moving. I don't know, what, 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 that money from that fine that is boosting the economy, isn't it? Classic, classic woke hypocrisy, Nish. <laughs> woke hypocrisy was my wrestling name, Andrew. <laughs> Well, let's move on to February then, when love is traditionally in the air. Rishi went on a hot date with Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission. Their love-in bore fruit in the shape of the Windsor Framework, a new agreement which replaced Boris Johnson's post-Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol. The Windsor Framework is the movement of goods between the UK and Northern Ireland and probably remains one of Sunak's few genuinely positive achievements of his time in number 10 so far. Though I will invoke what I'm now calling uh, the Zaltzman principle uh, of it's very difficult to give someone credit for sweeping up a mess that they made. Yeah. yeah. That's, that, that's now PSUK canon, the Zaltzman principle. <laughs> February also saw a uh, long relationship come to a tearful end as Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's longest serving first minister, announced her shock resignation. And her reasons became, Coco, that is the worst eating of a mince pie I've ever seen. It, the whole thing collapsed like a Rishi Sunak pledge. <laughs> You and guys then, mocked me for pounding it in one earlier, but you got to just go For the benefit in. of listeners, Coco tried to... There's mini mince pies out on the table. Now, already, I thought that was dangerous. And I'm steering clear of them because I don't trust myself to eat them. Khan, on the other hand, backed herself. Absolutely. <laughs> and the thing disintegrated in your hand. What I would just say is that I was born with a small mouth. And this is not my fault. <laughs> While Coco uh, organises her mince pie admin, let's uh, listen to Sturgeon announcing her shock resignation. I know it might seem sudden, but I have been wrestling with it, albeit with oscillating levels of intensity for some weeks. Essentially, I've been trying to answer two questions. Is carrying on right for me? And more importantly, is me carrying on right for the country, 
for my party and for the independence cause I have devoted my life to. Sturgeon's reasons became a little clearer a few months later when she was detained and questioned as part of a police investigation into the SNP's finances. She was released without being charged later the same day and the investigation is still uh, continuing. Uh, Would it be fair to say the SNP has not uh, quite recovered from that, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, it was a kind of weird political moment in that it was genuinely unexpected. Most political stories have days or weeks of leaks and when it finally happens there isn't that element of surprise but this did sort of come out of of nothing seemed to catch the whole of the SNP by surprise as well when she resigned she was still ahead in the polls and also admitted that she regretted some of her decisions in the manual of political resignations (laughs) you're not supposed to you're supposed to leave in abject chaos you were supposed to insist you were completely right all along and you're supposed to be so unpopular with the voting public that your pencil screams at you and runs out of the room when you try to vote. Um, yeah, and two months later, you should release a book that's basically called Why I Was Right to Do Everything yeah, yeah. That I Did <laughs> so, and I Regret Nothing. So it was, and as you say, we didn't know the full story at, at the time, and clearly there was you know, more more going on. But yeah, I mean, where it leaves Scottish independence, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm not a fan of Scottish independence because I am English and... You know, I've looked at the maps the day after general elections when they colour in the constituencies in the colours of the, how they voted, and all I would say is, Scotland, please never leave. I know. I know That's a lot of blue. It does feel like a sort of hostage situation, isn't it, where yeah. you're sort of like, please stay, please stay, because otherwise we will never be free. <laughs> don't, don't leave us alone with yeah. ourselves. The leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Douglas Ross, said, we cannot ignore that Sturgeon has presided over a decade of division and decay. (laughs) At which point, I think the entire United Kingdom was just blasted off its moorings into a low orbit by the sheer force of irony. April saw us bid a tearful farewell to Dominic Raab. Uh, in another blow to Rishi Sunak, his uh, best friend in politics, uh, by which I mean the only man less charismatic than him in politics, <laughs> was forced to resign as the Deputy Prime Minister after an investigation into bullying allegations, which found that Raab acted in an intimidating and insulting manner with civil servants that undermined or humiliated them. And uh, it just goes to show, sometimes it is the people you most suspect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm David Aronovich. Listen to my new series from Tortoise, Eight Years Hard Labour. It tells the extraordinary story of the double revolution that engulfed the Labour Party after 2015, from centre-left to hard-left and back again. The battles and disasters that accompanied them and the two men who led those revolutions, Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer. Listen to Eight Years Hard Labour wherever you get your podcasts. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. 
then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. May was notable for a couple of things. We burst onto the scene um, to bring to political podcasting uh, righteous anger and quite a lot of uh, references to the Fast and Furious franchise. (laughs) Um, But also in May, something else happened. An old man got a lovely new hat. We are, of course, referring to the coronation. And in the studio, we are now, for the benefit of listeners, watching the hat be lowered onto King Charles's head. And Let's give it a firm push, doesn't he? The yeah. uh, Archbishop. Yeah, I've quite tried it on before. <laughs> Do not grease up a crown before a coronation and make sure it goes on. God save the king! God save the king! This is evidence of a very, very normal country, <laughs> I would say. Do you- I don't think the look on Charles's face during this. We've been waiting, what, 75 years for this? And it's happening, and he's got that look on his face thinking, this is really ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, this whole thing was a mistake. Oh, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you, and faith and truth I will bear unto you as your liege man of life and limb. So help me God. There's Prince William giving it the big one. I've never seen that before. And honestly, Why are you surprised me, Catherine? I know, what a shocker. <laughs> a loyal I, Irish citizen that you didn't watch the coronation of the King of England. I, A, can't believe there was an actual crown. Like, I yeah. thought, like, you'd get the gist. And B, it feels like, do you know if you showed up to Dublin and they were just sort of putting a hat on the most Irish of the leprechauns? <laughs> it feels, it, the sincerity of that reminds me exclusively of one event in my life where I went to... There's an actual leprechaun museum in Temple Bar. And I went what? in with some friends for a laugh yeah, and we were drunk obviously and the teenage American giving the tour said I am going to give you some facts about leprechauns okay. and I remember out loud saying facts <laughs> <laughs> and that like just like an actual crap cra- like a real crap in wild well I mean the thing is I mean you see, I mean, it does. People say, "Oh, it looked a bit anachronistic," and you, yeah, you say, "Well, this doesn't look like a country that's sort of modernised." But the thing you can't, you've got to double down. You've got to quadruple down on this stuff because the moment you start saying, "Well, maybe we don't need to do this bit or that bit," the whole thing yeah, has to yeah. go. I almost admired the commitment of the ele- elevation to constitutional godhood of our overlord and master, his stratospheric highness, Hyper King Mega Charles. And you've got to say, seven months on, he has more than proved himself absolutely Q-grade king material. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, he's, uh, he's, I mean, he said nothing particularly provocative. That's, you know, that's absolutely key to the job. He's also, part of the ceremony, everyone shouted, may the king live forever. You know, his, his, his mother set a very good example because yes. you look at the economic problems you've got, it's, it's the fact that pensions are so expensive. She worked until she was you know, literally hours from moving on to the uh, to, to the next realm. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, if everyone followed her example, we wouldn't have to pay a penny. <laughs> so, I mean, these people are, are heroes. King Charles taking up a new gig at 70, 74, 75. But, but may the king live forever. I mean, I would not wish that on my worst enemy. <laughs> we should have been saying, not may the king live forever, may the king have a good 
15 years or so and then retire, <laughs> fake his own death and move to Vegas like the previous two generations in his family did. Like yeah. guy. I mean, it's hard to get an Irish person to sympathise with Cromwell, but I would agree with you. I think there should be a system in place for Charles dying and that should be it. <laughs> all, all I'm saying is, I hadn't noticed that he was only wearing one glove until Andy pointed out right now. If my brother was Prince Andrew, I wouldn't do something to evoke Michael Jackson in my clothing <laughs> terms. That's all I'm saying about it. That's that's all I'm saying about it. Um, let's, so let's move on to June. <laughs> let's, I just feel that when there's a pedo reference, it's good to quickly <laughs> and swiftly Segway move on. on. So June Guys. brought a moment that many of us have been waiting years for and frankly despaired would never happen, which is Boris Johnson's lies finally caught up with him. Boris Johnson, who nine months ago was Prime Minister, has quit as an MP. In a long, angry statement, he blamed the Privileges Committee that investigated him over Partygate. On learning, they wanted to see him suspended for over 10 days, which could have seen him kicked out of the Commons. He stood down, branding it a kangaroo court. So that was footage from Sky News. So Johnson reacted to the Privileges Committee's report with the humility, grace and introspection we've all come to expect from him, which was a bitter 1,000-word statement. He angrily accused the investigation of trying to drive him out. He claimed it was a witch hunt to take revenge for Brexit. Johnson also hinted at a future return to politics, saying he was... Was very sad to be leaving Parliament for now. And I think at this point, it's important to remind listeners that his resignation was the culmination of a process where MPs, including over 100 Conservatives, voted to investigate whether he'd lied to the House about uh, Partygate. A panel of four MPs from the Conservatives, two from Labour and one from the SNP was assembled. Uh, and the panel heard all the evidence and wrote a report saying they thought he had lied and recommended that Johnson be suspended from the Commons for more than 10 days. That would have to have been voted on by the House, which had at that point a 60-seat Conservative majority. And if that had passed, a petition would have been opened. And if 10% of the constituency had signed it, there would have been a recall election that Johnson himself could have actually stood in. But none of that happened because Boris Johnson quit because he is, and I cannot stress this enough, a fucking coward and everyone <laughs> hates him. But I wanted to repeat the technical process here because it feels like there's been an attempt by his supporters, mentioning no names, Nadine Doris, uh, to say that he was brought down unfairly and this is sort of... Was oh, she a, one of his supporters? <laughs> <laughs> and say that there was an attempt to bring him down unfairly. But this was the culmination of a very, very long process. But what do we think? Have we seen the back of Johnson? Well, he's already oh, been uh, being floated, isn't he, of coming back? Not in a turd way, just in a sort of political way that he's... They're talking about a Johnson-Farage collab Christ. where they yeah. both take over the Conservative Party. Uh, and they, they're calling it a dream ticket. I don't know how much poisoned cheese you would have had to have eaten <laughs> to, dream, uh, to dream that dream. What do you think? Are we, are we done with Johnson? No, we're not. Because, of course, I think that kangaroo court accusation was the big, really the escalation of him into his Trump era. Like... They had to write that report, but they also had to give the n a number of additional days for them just having to reply to his flipping crazy yeah. tweet. It was like there was a whole another 10 days of them just being like, no, Addendum 64, Harriet Harman does not kill puppies. And you can't say that she kills. But like, so I think he will absolutely be back. Um, it's as if he ever went away. But no, I don't want to see the back nor front of him. <laughs> Thank you very Andrew. much. Yeah, I mean... It would be nice to think that at some point he will look in a mirror and think, it's really time for me to leave the planet and get a, <laughs> call up one of his billionaire friends. I'm not saying, I'm saying I want him, yeah, yeah, to, to live humanely yeah. in, in orbit or space. <laughs> like Napoleon in space, yeah. Elba. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's still got to a point 
his his uh, honors list. Yeah. Um, mm. Which is, you know, out of all the things that, you know, my, my kids are teenagers now and throughout their lives I've tried to introduce them to the joys of democracy. But trying to explain why Boris Johnson got to put his personal choice of people into Parliament for fucking ever. Yeah. That's really difficult. I mean, the whole story was just such an unedifying endoscopy into the (laughs) putrid bowels of British democracy. And the repercussions of Johnson's political career, regardless of whether he's involved or not, are going to shape politics for the foreseeable future. So, um, (laughs) Well, you know, you can't talk Boris without Nadine. They're like salt and pepper, gum and nuts, Ant and Deck. What else is there? I don't remember Gum and Nuts' songs. I remember yeah. Salt and Pepper's <laughs> music. Gum and Nuts is a deep cut Simpsons reference. It's a right, okay. yeah, yeah, very yeah. deep cut. Yeah, it's one of Homer Simpson's ideas. It's a sort of joke about how he's a white male aged 18 to 40 and everyone has to listen to his ideas about how dumb they are. And he starts, eat, he starts eating something that's uh, nice. nut, like gum nuts. Yeah, and nice. it says gum and nuts and the catch line is together at last. Yeah. Which is obviously <laughs> fabulous. Um, so... So Johnson wasn't the only blonde bombshell to uh, quit in June. He was swiftly followed out of the door by his number one superfan, Nadine Dorries. She was Schrodinger's MP. She resigned, but not really, and wouldn't until someone told her why she wasn't getting a seat in the House of Lords, which is, you know, I think we can all agree, a mind-boggling level of (laughs) entitlement. Um, Well, in the notes of my script, uh, our producer, Musty, kindly put an example, which was like, oh, it would be similar to saying that I was going to quit this show, but refusing to leave until I found out why we didn't win a British Podcast Award. And actually, I think that's a great idea. What? This is what I'm going to do. What, you're going to quit until we win a British Podcast Award? Yeah, but not really. (laughs) But threaten it. Nice. Um, And you have uh, Nadine Doris on your uh, desktop, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, I was looking at... um, buying a copy of her book um, for for Christmas. I made a list of the books that I would like to read before I got round to reading Nadine Doris. And it's basically everything on Amazon, um, plus everything on on the um, what is it, Abe books that sells old antiquarian books. I think I'd rather read Practical Witchcraft Annual 1632 by Cackling <laughs> Betty Broomsticks. Uh, which that sounds great. Sounds awesome. Yeah. 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 Fabulous. Yeah. That sounds like the kind of thing women give to their friend who just got broken up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And some tarot cards. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. You're going to be fine, yeah. babe. Practical Witchcraft, of course, of the 17th century forerunner of good housekeeping. <laughs> um, uh, also, How to Dissect a Gerbil with Your Bare Hands by Mike the Roden Slayer Splurgeon. I'd rather read, read that, and that is graphic. <laughs> Absolutely graphic and also lacks a degree of poetry in the prose. <laughs> so, I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, again, it's... So Doris is one of these characters that we've seen a lot in politics recently, and you think, well, how have you ended up where you've ended up? Mm. Um, and, you know, was was cult, culture secretary before... I think it was Oliver Dowden followed... Yeah. And both of those, you think... They seem to have taken the role of culture secretary... Like you might say, if you were minister for for crime, as something to try to eradicate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um, bye bye. Will you miss uh, Mad Nats? You know, I I have some sympathies. I have some friends who've written books, and they don't always email you back. <laughs> And I feel like she started on the book clearly earlier than we, she's pretending she did. (laughs) And she definitely meant to quit. But things pile up, don't they? She hasn't washed her hair in a while. I have no sympathy. I hate the woman. No, I don't miss her. I do love that interview. I can't remember what it was on when she was like, 
she was talking about not getting to be in the House of Lords and which in of itself is just like the least relatable complaint yeah. I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, but it, she was just like, because, you know, I'm just a, well, I was just a young woman from Liverpool. And I was like, whoa, I don't know where your accent comes from and I don't like you. And <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I would say the little Lord Fauntleroy school of politics that she and Johnson came from where it's like, but I said I wanted it, so I should have it is something that is uniquely British. Yeah, well... Look, Nadine was very upset about Johnson going um, and then he did go, finally, because mm. uh, July brought on the by-election, brought on by him quitting the seat in Uxbridge and Ryslip. And it came on a hugely dramatic American-style Super Thursday uh, where three by-elections were fought on the same day. Though I will say any comparison with uh, American-style elections <laughs> collapses as soon as I say the names of all of the constituencies. And we do, we do have a, a sub- substantial number of American listeners to this show, in spite of all the continuous references to weird bits of British politics. And so... I, I, and just... that one Simpsons joke. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me for the international <laughs> listeners. Let's let the American listeners and indeed the listeners from everywhere around the world except the UK enjoy all of the names of these places as we assure you they are real places. Uh, Labour made history by overturning a 20,137 majority to take the North Yorkshire seat of Selby and Ainsty, which sounds no. like a music hall double act. Uh, the Lib Dems overturned a majority of more than 90,000 in Somerton and Froome with an astonishing 29% swing, but the Tories inexplicably did hang on to Uxbridge and South Ryslip by just 495 votes, which uh, they are claiming is down to their ability to capitalise on local anger over the planned expansion of the ULES ultra-low emission zone to outer London under London Mayor Sadiq Khan, which ironically was a scheme first introduced by his Conservative predecessor, who was, of course, Boris Johnson. (laughs) They did reshape their policies, right? Like after that by-election, they started to quite, go quite hard on on essentially being anti-green, right? And but it that's... was so annoying. It was like 400 votes and they were like, we, from this can extrapolate a complete disregard for the environment <laughs> yeah. based yeah, yeah. on the entire country's views. And it was like, I don't think that's it. I think that's just some dads who are mad. No offence. <laughs> and I feel like maybe it's not everybody's biggest concern. The willingness of this conservative group to be like, Oh, at any turn to be like, you know what? I really think it's that we're not right wing enough. <laughs> is wild to me. It's wild. I listen. Uh, the fact too that Froome isn't a marshmallow-based food group is for sure, if you say so. Well, look on the subject of the environment. That brings us neatly onto August, which saw our millionaire prime minister jetting off on the kind of summer holiday that most of us could only dream of. He whisked his family off to the five million pound uh, luxury penthouse apartment that they own in Santa Monica. While he was away, though, Greenpeace activists climbed onto the roof of his North Yorkshire home to protest at his decision to expand oil and gas production in the North Sea. Just just before we move on, it's worth saying that the, it, as much as this has been a gloomy year politically. Politically, there's been huge amounts of protest and activism. Just Stop Oil were involved in several eye-catching protests, including at the Snooker World Championships, Wimbledon and the Lord's Ashes Test. And, uh, you know, the Gaza protests have attracted uh, hundreds of thousands of people to London every week. The, the, a bright spot in this year has been the willingness of people to organise and demonstrate uh, in the face of some very, very unorthodox political decision-making. I think that's fair to say. I mean, I guess, you know, from, from Sunak's point of view, these are... You know, the, the fossil fuels that he wants to dig up, these are British fossils and we can't let them have d- died in vain for us. You know, they, they died so that we may drive our cars. Yeah. <laughs> 
September began with a political row that none of us saw coming. The reinforced autoclave aerated concrete scandal, otherwise known as RAC. It was a story that offered up the perfect metaphor for a country falling apart at the seams. Yes, it turned out our schools were crumbling because they'd been made out of giant aero bars. More than 100 schools in England had to be fully or partially closed because buildings were built with a special type of concrete full of air bubbles that was found to be unsafe. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan didn't exactly cover herself with glory for her handling of the crisis. She was mocked for publishing a graphic that claimed most schools are unaffected uh, and Labour was quick to post a jaw spoof saying most beachgoers were not eaten by a big shark. But she also gave us probably the most memorable hot mic moment of the year. <laughs> we will get a plan and every single one of them will be done. Okay, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Quick two shot down. Just okay. a, it's all right, just, just, two, just two months for a... For a Does anyone ever say, <clears throat> you know what, you've done a good job because everyone else has sat on their arse and done nothing. No, no, no signs of that, no? <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone say you've ever fucking done a good job? <laughs> It feels a little too close to Christmas to have that kind of energy because I'm like, that's going to be every mom in a week. (laughs) (laughs) So look, this was one of those stories that was everywhere for a week and then pretty much it disappeared from the news. So we actually asked Gronya Hallahan, the senior analyst from the Times Educational Supplement, to bring us up to date with what happened next. The vast majority of these schools are back to -to face-to-face teaching, albeit in demountable classrooms and in repurposed sports halls. However... Even as recently as late November, new cases of RAC in schools are coming to light. So although the rising number has slowed right down, we still might find more schools have RAC in them and we're just waiting to have that confirmed by a survey. All of these schools are now either having building work done, waiting for building work to start, or waiting for more surveys to find out the extent of how much building work they need to have done. In total, we have 231 schools that have confirmed RAC in them. This is spread all around the country from north to south. We've got it in primary, secondary, sixth form colleges, special schools, pupil referral units. Because RAC was used in every type of education building, the consequences, the full range of education provisions have felt the impact. The other part of this is where no RAC was found at all, schools have had their learning disrupted because they've had to take on extra pupils, give over their classrooms, school buildings, to help out those schools which have got rack in them. And for that, we have no list. The problem is being fixed. However, in the case of schools where they need whole buildings rebuilt, this is going to take years, not months. We're going to be waiting a long time to be totally rack free. The escape of terrorism suspect Daniel Khalif from Wandsworth Prison in September was responsible for, personally, my favourite TV moment of the year. Here's GB News presenter Martin Daubney reacting calmly and professionally (laughs) to the news of his recapture. First, it's the news headlines. No, it's not. We're going straight to me. This is breaking news. It's fast happening. Because as we just said, um, the the terror man... (laughs) It's all gone wrong. It's here. Chip Chapman, uh, we have him coming up soon on the arrest of the terror suspect. He he escaped from Wandsworth Prison and he's been apprehended. It's all coming up in GB News. We've got our first guest. Here it is. Police have escaped, have arrested prisoner Daniel Khalif. Beg your pardon, we're getting the Oscar in the right place. This story is just happening. Joining me now for the latest is GB News Home Security Editor Mark White. Are you there, Mark? 
is Chip Chapman. We have Chip Chapman, Army um, for the Army Angle, former head of counterterrorism, Major General Chip Chapman. I just love that so much. <laughs> just like Terror Man, it's happening. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. <laughs> That's what you want from your newsreaders, just to say what we're all thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all gone wrong. Can I just say, I know that this isn't the same, but I date what I, like, is technically, she's an incredibly good person. And if she ever has to lie, which is rare, watching her do so is exactly like that. The <laughs> person coming, terrorist, um, chip, 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 chip is next. And it's so stressful that that felt familiar. <laughs> and nice. Speaking of people uh, forced to be in a place they didn't want to be in, uh, October was party conference season. <laughs> uh, the Tories get together in Manchester uh, turned into a complete absolute shit show because there was obviously the surreal spectacle of ministers travelling up from London to Manchester to announce that plans to make it easier, quicker and cheaper for everyone else to travel between London and Manchester were being axed. And the row over the decision to cancel the northern leg of the HS2 high-speed rail project, cast a shadow over the whole conference, alleviated only by the odd, <laughs> unintentionally hilarious moment like this in what we can only assume was an auto-cue malfunction to rival Martin Daubney on GB News when Penny Morden did this. Stand up and fight, because when you stand up and fight, the person beside you stands up and fights. And when our party stands up and fights, the nation stands up and fights. And when our nation stands up and fights, other nations stand up and fight. And they stand up and fight for the things upon which the entire progress of humanity depends. Freedom. What in the name of white jihad was that? She basically seemed to be going for total global warfare. <laughs> I mean, that is the problem. They gave her a sword earlier in the year. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that set a bad example for Penny Morden for yeah. the rest of the year to think, well, violence is being normalised. You know, I can wander around with a sword and everyone says I'm fantastic. And now, you know, just a few months later, she's calling for <laughs> total World War Three. <laughs> wow. Um, in terms of the Tory conference, uh, I guess the sort of key questions are... Was it really a party that was serious about governing? The answer is probably not. It was more about sort of jockeying position for who, for who's going to be the next leader of the Tory party, right? Yeah, and pitching your next book. Listen, <laughs> listen, stand up and fight. Sure. <laughs> Come on. Uh, so the Labour Party conference in Liverpool was more of a tightly controlled affair, or at least it was until leader Keir Starmer stood up to make his big closing speech. So this is Starmer. Citizen-led. Politics needs an update. At the speech, being covered in glitter uh, by a protester who's um, trying to draw attention to the cause of uh, democratic changes in this country. Um, and Starmer is brushing glitter off his shoulders as if instructed by Jay-Z. I think he looks better with the glitter on. Who doesn't, Catherine? I don't know. He danced up a fairly average suit. Every time I watch it, I'm reminded that it wasn't a just stop oil protest. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Which is yeah. awful. I feel like they've just really like monopolised protests at this point. I do feel like we're in the pocket of big just stop oil. But I <laughs> honestly am astonished. He didn't even open his jacket. You couldn't even read what it said on his T-shirt. I'm always on the protesters' side, but I'm like, open your blazer. Also, just on the Conservative conference, you did... Rather gloss over the fact that Suella Braverman trod on someone's guide dog, which, <laughs> which I thought was the most humane what? thing that she did all year. And I think it was 
unfair of you not to highlight the the one sort of good positive thing that she did this year <laughs> when she trotted with someone's guide dog. Whether it was deliberate or not, that's not for me to judge. That is wild. That reminds me, wasn't it Nadine Dorries who said that she would that when she was asked what she would need Johnson to do in order to stop supporting him, she said he'd have to kick a dog, which felt like so weirdly specific. That, that he's definitely kicked his he's dog. He's definitely like punched a dog. <laughs> he just hasn't kicked the dog. Whoa, I didn't know she did that. Yeah, that yeah. is completely on brand. Can I just ask a quick question here? Is it weird or is it a good thing for Keir Starmer that we've got this far into a review of the year and this is sort of the first real conversation we're having about the Labour Party? Is that a, a, a bad thing for him or is that a sign that actually his tactic of sort of don't really say anything? Homer Simpson into the bush. Yeah, it, it, Simpsoning into the bush. Is, is that paying off? He has a reputation that now just gets churned out for, you know, not saying a lot, being a bit neutral, being a bit boring, and how much is reality. I mean, that speech that he gave after that was a sort of classic example. For a start, I do think all politicians should be doused with something before making a speech. (laughs) Um, Whether it's glitter, raspberry jelly, eggnog, water from a British river. Is that that too much? Um, But something just to, you know, so that it, it, you know, means that we focus... Yeah, they can't present it how they want. You know, it's it's a more honest way of communicating. I think the people, glitter worked really well for him. Yeah, yeah, it did. The jacket came off. The yeah. sleeves were rolled up. Yeah, Starmer's here. Yeah, he's not fussed. He's that, calm. That speech. Um, I mean, it was described as stunningly compelling, a persuasive case for political change, and also as insipid, desolate, <laughs> a new chapter of rudderless centrism. Um, by two different newspapers. <laughs> you don't need to guess which one, which was the Guardian, which was the Telegraph, but. Such is politics. Also, he made a pitch for a decade of national renewal, which I think is overestimating the attention span of the voters. <laughs> just, yeah. just promise us a weekend of national relative non-chaos, and I think that will be that will be enough. I think this is why you, ordinarily I would say it is an issue that he hasn't been mentioned this far into a year, but I do feel like, do you have that thing in Britain where when you finish school at the end, the last day of school, you're allowed to like trash the place? Oh, yes, well, rush the place. not really. But you like Do you have people the... like write on each other's shirts and stuff like that. Yeah, like, or like put the... washing up liquid in the toilets or t- like toilet paper the place. No, no, we. Uh, I don't think we have that tradition. Okay, is that an Irish? Tradition? I think you just went to a very polite school. In my girlfriend's school, that one person drove a car into the into the sports hall. They definitely have it. Right, right, right. Um, but. I think I remember that day being so stressed because I was such a perfectionist, obsessive goody two shoes, and I didn't do anything. Right. I was just hoping we'd recap the history um, curriculum because <laughs> exams were next week. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I didn't get any praise for that because everyone else was like blowing desks up. And um, sorry, that was a weirdly Irish stereotype. But, I just, <laughs> I just but they like, did call ahead before they blew the desks. So. <laughs> People were trashing the place, and I think, um, I think quite similarly, it's like, yeah, we're not mentioning him, but like that's because everyone else is. The, the metric is banana. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's obviously there's areas of where his policy announcements have lacked ambition. Certainly, I think there's a lot of instinctive and natural Labour supporters that wished he would take a, a kind of stronger stance on on Gaza. Um, yes. but at the same time. I worry for our future as a country that the bar for winning the next election is so low <laughs> that we might elect the lowest ambition government in British history at a time where we need them really to be the highest ambition government. Yeah, although, yeah. I mean, there's also, in terms of the strategy of it, that you, it might be that you do have high ambitions, but there's two reasons why you might not want to lay them all out. A, yeah. you, you don't want to show your hand too far ahead of a, an election. Two, you don't want to set unachievable goals. Bear in mind, bearing in mind, 
the situation they're going to yeah going to inherit in which you know the state of the economy and society will limit what can be um can be achieved so i can sort of see the strategy but whether that's how it is or if he's just very naturally cautious and yeah you know almost too politically centrist um i don't know let's take a second to pay tribute to a politician who promised something and delivered it unfortunately what this politician promised was pure uncut crazy and it's exactly what she delivered in office suella braverman arguably gave us Westminster's most dramatic day of the year on Monday, November the 13th, when Rishi Sunak finally gave the Guardian reading tofu-eating wokarati something to cheer by plucking up the courage to sack the Home Secretary, who'd previously been sacked as Home Secretary and then rehired by Rishi Sunak as Home Secretary six days later. Then he shocked pretty much everyone by appointing former Prime Minister David Cameron, who'd been out of politics for seven years as his new Foreign Secretary. Um, I'm a bit tired, but I don't think I've had a funny turn. But let me just tell you what's just happened. David Cameron has just walked up the street and gone into 10 Downing Street. I think, I don't know, but I think that means he's going to be the new Foreign Secretary. We saw James Cleverley walk in there. James Cleverley, I think, is going to be the new Home Secretary. And I think David Cameron, former Prime Minister from 2010 to 2016, has been out of politics for the last seven years. I think that Rishi Sunak might be making him Foreign Secretary. I'm still digesting this. That was the BBC's chief political correspondent, Henry Zeffman, with a reaction that was mirrored by all of his colleagues across the media. David Cameron had been out of politics. He wasn't even an MP. He had to be made into a Lord so that he could be made Foreign Secretary. Uh, Catherine, how did you feel at seeing the return of old Hamdick? (laughs) It is... Uh, Listen, I... hmm. I get that to be foreign secretary or home secretary in this country, like the requirements are evil. I do understand the job description is evil, own a cat. I get that. But of all the parties where I think you could already find an evil person, I wouldn't have thought you'd have to like call in new recruits, make them lords and then possibly um, put them into cabinet. It's wild to me that he felt the need to do so. Obviously, it's what is... I think what I think the funniest part about it is that Cleverly had to go in there and who like is like the least impactful man in the world. And <laughs> they were like, so um, we think we're going to move you across. And he'd be like, oh, well, who, who's the new guy? Oh, God <laughs> damn it. I guess I'm not as good as that guy. I mean, it's wild. Andy, how did you feel at the sight of human indigestion, David Cameron burping back up into our um, national consciousness? It was quite hard to get your head around what overlapping circles of hell have yeah. emerged <laughs> yeah. such that the answer to whatever question was asked was get David Cameron back. That's, right? That is, I mean, personally, I don't know him personally, but I do think that after Brexit, he should have been as humanely as possible <laughs> chained to Big Ben and had, had his liver ripped out every day by an eagle, metaphorically, of course, not literally, for his Prometheus-style crime of... Um, taking xenophobia from uh, from UKIP and spreading it across the entire um, <laughs> national political landscape. But, you know, humanely, we'd put like, special bombs on it and everything. It wouldn't hurt that much. So it was kind of, it was weird to have him, to have him back. But then, you know, such as, you know, politics is so strange now. Let's just pay tribute to Suella Braverman. I mean, she was 
removed from her position uh, after an op-ed in the Times, which Number 10 said they didn't sign off on, which accused the Met Police of bias in their policing of pro-Palestinian protests. This came off the back of a series of pronouncements, including grooming gang members being almost all British Pakistani, which is obviously nonsense and racist, uh, saying asylum seekers were pretending to be gay to get special treatment, saying that multiculturalism had failed, saying homelessness was a lifestyle choice and that pro-Palestinian demonstrations were hate marches. I mean... Has a demon been exercised from British politics or has it simply been put into a position where it's laying dormant and ready to come back as the next leader of the Conservative Party? Well, it's weird, but you know, because she's been sacked, but her legacy remains. In the recent weeks, we've been talking about the Rwanda policy. We got the Supreme Court's decision that the government's Rwanda plan was uh, unlawful. But in December, the government launched its twin plan to keep the Rwanda plan alive. That involved first sending new Home Secretary James Cleverly to the tiny Central African country to sign a new treaty. Then the government introduced a new piece of legislation which designated Rwanda a safe country, a bill that saw soon own immigration minister Robert Jenrick quit because he couldn't support it. Then Sunak managed to see uh, off a mooted rebellion, but the chaos promises to continue into the new year as the bill progresses through Parliament. So that's something we can look forward to. So listen, gone, Suella, but not forgotten. <laughs> Andy, um, what do you think about uh, Suella and the unworkable, unlawful Rwanda plan? It's quite hard to sort of work out how we've ended up in a position where basically you have a policy that that basically everyone seems to say won't work, won't be cost-effective, and probably isn't legal. And the government have got themselves in a position where they can't back down from it <laughs> now. So they have to, you know, the global migration crisis is one of the defining issues of our age, and it is something that that touches on numerous international issues of, um, you know, war, environment, inequality, oppression and also the fundamental flaw in the human genetic makeup, whereby if we live somewhere shit, we want to move to somewhere less shit, which is fundamentally the root cause of all this, this problems. Of yeah, want... and, and several countries decided to get together and make large parts of the world very shit for a long time. <laughs> yes, yes, that yes, was yes. also so one that stewed so, that, that was a bit of an yeah, issue as so well. Rwanda is more densely populated and considerably less well off than Britain. So yeah. if the idea is we can't, we don't have the space or facilities to take our portion of the global migration crisis, <laughs> giving it to Rwanda is borderline insane. I do take a little bit of issue when people, I think we all feel the need to be like, it wasn't just her plan, but she has said explicitly, it is her dream yeah. Oh, yeah. to <laughs> see the yeah. first Rwandan flight ticket. Yeah. It's like, please, God, may she never take, change her dream to like world peace, because then that's never happening. <laughs> but it's just like, oh, what an evil, she's so vile. She's so vile. Oh, I don't understand. It's this. also, you know, obviously at a time where um, people are struggling to pay their heating bills, there aren't enough subsidies. Jeremy Hunt's uh, in the autumn statement announced another round of cuts. You would think there wouldn't be money to fly people to Rwanda, but as I've always said, the motto of the Conservative Party is there's always money for racism. <laughs> <laughs> and it's what, a quarter of a billion pounds. And so far, um, let me just check the latest totaliser zero people. <laughs> zero people have been. Um, but I mean, that's the, the. I mean, everyone agrees that something. You know, has to be done from a hu- basic humanitarian point of view. Yeah. People want to stop people trafficking. It's one of the great evils of the world. But we've got, but such that is the is way that's not what they're trying to stop. <laughs> but you no, know no. it. But, but but the way that political discourse works, if you say, "Well, this is our plan to stop people trafficking by catapulting them yeah. to Rwanda," yeah. 
Well, I don't think well, that's a good idea. So you're in favour of people trafficking. <laughs> they don't no! even have the planes. They, it will be a catapult. Catapults are much more environmentally friendly. And I think that is actually <laughs> the one concession to the Green Lobby that the government might consider is to use catapults instead of aeroplanes to fire people to Rwanda. I do quite like that if there is an outcome where the five freaking families of the mafia that now gets to be the right-wing representative of this country yeah. don't get their way, I quite like that the British government might have accidentally given to, like more aid than they meant to to Rwanda. That's a nice outcome that may or may not happen. But... <laughs> uh, let's move on from Suella Braverman uh, before uh, all of us uh, spontaneously combust from sheer rage. <laughs> Buying a master mechanics tool set usually means high prices, higher interest rates, and who knows how many years of monthly payments. But at GearWrench, we don't believe that your tools should take years and years to pay for. So check out Mega Mod Master Sets. The master mechanics tool sets that deliver pro-quality tools, organized storage solutions, an easy-to-use lifetime warranty, and much, much more. All for thousands less than you'd expect. So don't wait. Explore the sets and check availability now. Only at GearWrench.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. There's just enough time for us to decide who should be our inaugural PSUK hero and villain of the year. Andy, you and I are going to propose a couple of heroes and then Nish and Catherine, you're going to propose a couple of villains for us to choose between. Catherine, you're up first. Who's your villain of the year? And bear in mind, you only have 60 seconds, my friend. Go. Okay, I, it's a, I'm proposing Mexican Coke. Um, <laughs> A couple of years ago, in what was possibly the most painful interaction between human beings I think I've um, ever sort of witnessed, Rishi Sunak described himself to a group of children as like a total coke addict. Yes, he did. Hell on earth. And uh, before rapidly and sort of awkwardly clarifying that he meant Coca-Cola. And I think we need to hold Mexican coke, which keeps him going with the level of enthusiasm he does, responsible for its actions. I genuinely think that he's sort of like... his. Anti-immigrant conservative party. How, how am I doing for time? Fueled on Mexican Coke is one that I uh, deplore, and I think it has a lot to be held accountable for. I'm surely over time. I'm so sorry. I was not actually keeping track of the time. Oh my god, I was so stressed. <laughs> I was speaking so fast. Well, I'm being told in, in my yeah. ear that you did it. That you absolutely did it within 60 seconds. Well done. Give, are we talking about Coca-Cola or Mexican cocaine? Coke is not Colombian Coke. It's a little <laughs> bit of a flavoursome Coca-Cola. Okay. And this anti-immigrant man is very enthusiastic about his imports. And this is okay. one of them. <laughs> More sugared variety yeah. of, uh, of Coke. Like your... Um, who's Nigerian fondest for, It's your fondest for Nigerian Fanta yeah, that we yeah, talked yeah. about last week. You've yeah. got to get on that, mate. Is it good? Coco's a big fan of Nigerian right. Fanta. Is it just more sugar? Well, it's it's not more sugar. It's the type of sugar. Yum. So they use cane sugar, I Yum. think, which is just so natural and delicious. And just, yeah, delicious. Uh, anyway, um, I digress. Uh, Nish, you're up now. 60 seconds. 
Well, Who should be our villain of the year? Well, look, I think that there were so many candidates for villain of the year, but when you look at it, there is a central figure to this. And it is going to sound like we're picking on it because Catherine's Mexican coke choice was essentially a dig at him. <laughs> but if you look at all of the kind of the, the theatre of villains around Rishi Sunak, he is the common denominator in all of this. And he started the year essentially by making a pitch saying, look, I'm the, you know, I'm going to do these five things. He's put himself very much at the centre of all of this. And all of the insanity is his doing. Because every decision, whether it's reinstating Suella Braverman only to have to get rid of her, uh, whether it's reinstating David Cameron, whether it's uh, his chancellor announcing a package of government cuts that essentially means if we enact them, there will be no government left and the House of Lords will have to be sold off, which might be the only good thing that would come out of it. It is Rishi Sunak. Everything that's happened this year and everything that's gone wrong this year at its core has been because the government is entirely run on the basis of Rishi Sunak's career continuing and him being successful. Everything is an action of self-interest. On the other hand, he's also my personal hero of the year because when he became Prime Minister, a lot of young British Asian kids were talking on the WhatsApp group saying, oh no, Rishi Sunak's become Prime Minister. Our parents are going to be insufferable now. Whatever we achieve in our lives, they're going to say, well, you're not Rishi Sunak. Now, given what he's done to the country, a lot of Asian parents are going, well... My, my kid is a comedian, but at least he's not Rishi Sunak. <laughs> I don't really like the guy's jokes, but at least he's not personally responsible for us having to cook grandma for heat. You nailed that. It was exactly 60 seconds, Bang. can I just say? I think it is Sunak, isn't it? Well, I don't think Sunak could make it through another unrelenting day without Mexican Coke. But they're too, uh, they're salt and pepper. They're gum and nuts. You know what Chicken I mean? and egg, yeah. Same, yeah. You're right. They are gum and nuts. God. <laughs> wow, I didn't. You're so right. So you kind of said the same thing, really. Fine. So we know who our PSUK villain of the year is. It is Rishi Sunak. Um, well played. Okay, let's take us out in this year-end wrap-up uh, on a more positive note. Uh, Coco, uh, you've got 60 seconds to convince us who your hero of the year is. So for me, it's Benjamin Zephaniah. He is one of Britain's best post-war poets, in my view. He was in our GCSE textbook, and he died earlier this month. Because of that, there were the usual obits, so it's brought all of his achievements into sharp focus. Now, I know this is a politics podcast, and he was a political figure throughout his whole life. He challenged the status quo in the arts, but he also put politics at the front of everything he did. So he, you know, I read Refugee Boy when I was at school. That transformed my idea of what a valid voice was and whose voices matter. Um, he also was really good on Peaky Blinders. That's not really related, but, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying he was very good. He was one of those figures who was not establishment, but through the success of his poetry, he got himself into establishment places, but he never sold out. He got himself onto Question Time, into the press, and he used that voice to speak up for other people. He was famously, uh, you know, concerned about the palace Palestinian cause. He wrote books that specifically only included marginal voices and black voices. This was long before diversity was cool. Do you know what I mean? And he famously rejected the OBE, again, long before anyone was doing it. On a personal level, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him and people like him. I read him at school. His vision of London was the one that I recognised. He made me think that whatever my accent, my experiences were valid. And doing this gig, I would say, is very much standing on the shoulder of giants. And he is one of those giants. So... You know, it's got to be Benjamin Zephaniah. Uh, Andy, I feel like we've uh, left you in a pretty uh, <laughs> tricky situation. I've got to take down Zephaniah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I think my nomination is is another Benjamin, Benjamin Stokes, England cricket captain, 
Okay. Who, who, and I'll explain why he's a political figure. Okay. The cricket that his England team has played over the last 18 months has been almost surreally attacking, particularly from the English tradition of playing cricket as if trying to eradicate the entire concepts of hope and beauty from the entire universe. <laughs> they played the most captivating Ashes series uh, over the course of the summer tour with Australia for gripping games that, that grabbed you by the soul, and they didn't, they didn't win. And yet they ended up with, with the glory. And it just taught us a lot about the nature of victory and, and whether victory is important or not. And it's important if you win, and if you don't win, then you can uh, pretend it's not. So, uh, <laughs> so he played, he's played this amazing cricket and this my lifelong obsession. He sort of played it. His team has played in a way that, I, that hasn't been seen before. The reason that he's a political figure is that Ashes series was 24 days of cricket. That's 24 days when I did not have to think about politics. <laughs> and that was the greatest gift that anyone can give. Don't you think it's fascinating that we both chose political heroes who are not actually from the political, like the formal political arena? Yes. That really tells you something. Well, what I think you're we... giving Andy a lot of credit there, Coco. Yeah, I really Andy agree. wanted to pick a cricketer because he's obsessed with cricket. He picked Ben Stokes and he desperately tried to work backwards. <laughs> yeah. And the best you could say was that he didn't have to think about politics at all when he thinks about him. That's, I don't okay. think you... I don't think so. uh, I think of the two Benjamins, though I do deeply love Ben Stokes, uh, it's a clear Benjamin Zephaniah victory. Oh. Oh, great. Seconded. <laughs> great, great, great. We've just got time uh, to thank both of our panellists, Catherine and Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a huge amount of fun wading through what has been a real sewage pipe of a year. <laughs> I don't even need to say sewage pipe. It's been a real British seaside. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, of a year. Um, also, we'd like to take a quick second to thank everybody who's got in touch with us uh, on the show this year. It has been wonderful uh, to see a community of listeners uh, come together. We don't always have time to include your messages on the podcast, but we do genuinely read them all. And we do consider the feedback we get both good and bad. So if you've got something you'd like to share with us, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. We love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514644572. And internationally, that's plus 4464472. We'll be back with more from Catherine and Andy, who will be looking ahead to what 2024 has to offer in the second part of this special. That will be popping up on January the 4th, so keep an eye out for that. Don't forget to follow at Pod Save the UK on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find us on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop, with additional production support from Ed Morrish and Tanya Hines. Video editing was by Will Darkin and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer, David Dargahi. The executive producers are Anishka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. Remember to hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.